The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken Smith. On September 19th, Thursday afternoon, a beautiful day in downtown Seattle, sitting next to my co-host here, Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning concepts and ideas to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. That's our goal and objective. And if you want to contribute to the show throughout the program, please give us a call you can call in live at 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, or shoot us an email, contact at empiradio.com, and you can email the question or comment, and we'll work it into the program throughout the day. Ethan, before we uh, dive into some serious investment concepts and <laughs> financial planning issues... Would you mind telling our listeners how we may help them with their financial lives? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know, if you're an individual investor out there, uh, perhaps you're 55 to 70 years old, looking toward retirement, perhaps you qualify for Social Security, have an IRA account or other assets in a 401k uh, or tax-deferred vehicle. Um, you know, I think you would do yourself a favor by giving us a call. We can help you in those areas of decisions that you enter as you enter retirement um, to help set up your retirement in the most beneficial way in terms of minimizing taxes, getting more of uh, returns that you do get from the market uh, in a tax-free nature, if possible, um, and, and many other things, actually. So we'd love to hear from you and, and walk you through how we can help people. Um, if you'd like to know more, you can also visit our website at empirical.net. And we've made a, a video there that entitled The Five Secrets of Retirement Success. And there we go over these things in some detail. We also will be hosting some seminars. Hey, guys, what's going on here? <laughs> Sorry. I'm having some technical difficulties oh, with my headphones. I have an idea. Why don't you mute the mic that Ken's on so when I'm talking we can not have it on the air. Okay, go ahead, Ethan. All right. Well, I'm not I'll, sure. I'll work through it. I couldn't tell if I was muted at that same time because I couldn't yeah, tell. Yeah, okay. so I'm not sure how that works. I, I'm hearing a, a very odd buzzing in my headphone, and also when I'm talking, one side oh. doesn't work and one does, and it sounds very awkward. Ah. So don't worry. I will, as a professional, I can power through this. <laughs> Overcome. Years of radio All experience. Right. Well, I, go I ahead. One more thing here. I just wanted to okay. mention that we'll be doing some upcoming seminars here, um, well, or workshops, if you will, about the, we're calling it now the six secrets of retirement success. That's right, we have one more secret to add to the five secrets. 
Uh, anyhow, it's about an hour long, and we have some presentations up in, up in Anchorage uh, coming up here next week on Tuesday uh, and Wednesday. And then also in, on Thursday of next week in Tacoma, uh, there will be a, a seminar at lunchtime uh, in our Tacoma office. And beyond that, looking ahead to October, we actually have another seminar, seminar planned, uh, although it's not quite on the calendar yet, up in Edmonds. We'll be doing um, a, a, a workshop up there uh, geared, again, toward retirement folks who um, are, again, 55 to 70 or so, have tax-deferred dollars, uh, also qualify for Social Security, and those sorts of things, and helping them through the decisions they have to make in, or, in order to, to maximize uh, their retirement. So anyhow, if you'd like to give us a call or, or check out our website for those upcoming seminars, feel free to do so. Our number here at the office is 206-923-3474. And just ask for Ken or Ethan, and obviously we'll be, be more than happy to speak with you. Sounds good, Sounds good Ethan. Thanks. <laughs> well, Ethan, there's been a pretty incredible rebound in uh, the stock market over the last uh, over a few weeks here, a couple Indeed. weeks. and couple uh, of here. Well, that'd be interesting to just take a look before we start tackling issues like the uh, up-and-coming uh, vote on the the, v- the the House spending bill for the government. Okay. Um, and uh, how that may affect the market in the short term. Yeah. And uh, what you should be doing or not doing as a result of what's going on in our political system. But uh, also continue to talk about, I'd like to talk about the fixed income. Eric and I, our director of research at Empirical, were, last week we're talking about bonds and particularly money that was flowing uh, like Niagara Falls, um, <laughs> water over the falls, into short-term, um, ultra-short-term corporate bond funds. And, and there was an article about the dangers of that that uh, we were talking about. So I want to I want to kind of do an overview and I promised we would talk about it in the show on fixed income and how that should play a role in your portfolio. And given everything that's currently going on, and interestingly enough, the one of the reasons the market shot up yesterday was the um, Fed decision to not retreat from their right QE3 action, so that they were going to continue to uh, to purchase uh, bonds. So another interesting point about trying to predict exactly what's going to happen from day sure. to day and make drastic adjustments to your portfolio. However, I do think there are some prudent ways to approach your fixed income and your overall portfolio, and I'd like to reiterate those um, on the program. So uh, let's take a look here, Ethan. I mean, ending uh, with today's close, if we take a look at the market, the Dow Jones closed at uh, 15.636, down a little bit, 40 points for the day. But um, I think we're, we're dangerously close here to high levels on the Dow. Yeah, yesterday was an all-time high, I think. Yeah, and if we look at the year-to-date on the S&P 500, the year-to-date return is a positive 20.77%. The last 12 months, ending again today... 22.11%. Interestingly enough, if you look over the last year now, the world stock market, if you use the VTETF, which uh, is for a world stock index, mm-hmm. Vanguard, up 24.57. So actually more than the SP 500 for the last 12 months. Hey, wow. Ending t- today. Yeah. Um, and 
we were talking earlier about wow, with all the news, you know, when you turn on the financial networks throughout the trading day and throughout the day, the amount of articles that are, I get bombarded with about what you should be doing or not doing, and all of those that don't relate to sound long-term investment strategy, uh, you could have ignored all of that and just stuck with your very well-built portfolio starting in January of this year. Maybe it was put together by a very bright advisor like Ethan Broga. (laughs) That's possible. And you just stuck with it and let Ethan do his job, rebalancing when necessary, keeping up to date on your personal situation, Mm -hmm. and uh, making the moderate adjustments that we need to make in the portfolio as the world evolves, but not based on day-to-day market news. Right. And if you were holding an all-world portfolio here, you'd be up 24%. 2457 percent over the last 12 months. Uh, that that is a phenomenal rate of return on equities. Yeah, uh, throughout this period of time, and over the last year, um, you know, you, you've got large U.S. value is up 28.86 percent uh, relative to the S&P. As I said, that's 22. So that's an area that we've highlighted in our. Portfolios, if we look at in the international market, the developed world in the IFA index is up 28% over the last 12 months. Year to date, <clears throat> it's only up 13.86%. But uh, if you dissect that, the value component is done a little better than the growth component. Uh, you have emerging markets. Year to date, emerging markets are down almost three percent, Ethan, two point nine five. But over the last twelve months, they're up eleven point four seven. We've talked in the last previous few shows about the merits of not only sticking with your <clears throat> emerging markets, but taking a look at making sure that you rebalance to, to increase your exposure to emerging markets. Highly uh, likely that emerging markets will not trail indefinitely into the future. And a systematic approach to rebalancing in that area would be a, a great now would be a great opportunity and time to do that. You know, on that note, uh, just point out that the return since November, or rather uh, September first, to now I realize it's a short period of time, and the market's done pos- is positive over that increment of time. Yes, the the, the the asset classes that have been leading the way here re- most recently um, are indeed the emerging markets. Uh, just looking yesterday. Um, the month-to-date returns on the S&P, for example, I think were about 4.5%. And the returns for the emerging markets were about double that over the same period. So interesting that all markets have pretty much been positive, but the ones that have lagged most recently have begun to surge ahead, at least, again, in the last couple of weeks. And taking you back to the year-to-date information, looking at the emerging markets, and the last time we did the show together, Ken, been a couple of weeks, um, you had a situation where the year-to-date performance on the emerging market was negative 11%, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly. And the rest of the market have, is actually basically all positive. But now they get, now year-to-date emerging markets are on the negative about 3%. So, indeed, they've been right. back recently. Yes, with a vengeance. <laughs> exactly. Gold, um, and down 22.7% over the last 12 months, down 18.36% for the last uh, year, for year-to-date. And I just, again, we're taking a stroll back in time in January... The constant bombardment of gold advertisements uh, that had had continued all through the crisis and into January of this year, those guys were not saying that gold would be down 18% for this year. 
five or twenty two percent, and that you should be in a portfolio of well diversified, globally diversified equities, that would have produced uh, for the last twelve months a twenty four percent return. Which, by the way, the spread on those two asset classes then is uh, almost fifty percent, right? Yeah. Um, that's what that's what the difference is there. If you had pulled out of your equities and loaded up on gold for the last twelve months. Which is which is an, an an enormous difference. The point being, I didn't predict that gold would be down twenty two percent. But my point is, it's far better to create a strategy that you own a lot of these different investment asset classes, knowing that that's what's it, it is going to be unpredictable. And at any one time, the spread between the worst and the best performing class yeah. will be very far. That should be the lesson everyone should be learning. All the people who loaded up on gold. Yeah. And I, I agree. It really is, if you accept that the market is unpredictable, you just, you just don't know what's going to happen right. week to week or month to month, you th- will then invest more appropriately than if you, if you think you do know what's going to happen. In other words, you'll, you'll take only the risks that you need to, right? You'll be more diversified as a general rule. It'll help, it'll help you make better decisions, and I think it's a, a healthy way to look at the market. Well, Ethan, let's take a look at the interest rates real quick. We've got... Um, the five-year Treasury at one point four seven. It was one point seven one last week. So uh, a little bit of a pullback in the uh, rates. They had shot up quite a bit, and um, the ten-year Treasury declined to two point seven four percent on the yield from two point nine last week. And um, if we take a look at ten-year Muni's on average, uh, two point seven three down about 20 basis points from 2.93 last week. 10-year AAA corporates, 3.56%, uh, was 3.63 last week. Five-year AAA corporates at 1.76, down from 1.93. So you've got the spread between, let's take a look at the five-year treasury and the AAAs. The spread this week is about 29 basis points on a, Owning a AAA corporate over a five-year treasury, the uh, spread on the ten years about eighty-two basis points, and that's just something we like to keep an eye on. Uh, your preference of taking on credit risk or avoiding it is affected by that spread. What the difference is between those two? Mm-hmm. Prime rate still at three and a quarter, and uh, your average uh, three-month. <clears throat> LIBOR rate, 0.25, one-year CD, 0.63, a 30-year mortgage at 4.42. That's down a little bit from last week. And um, I think that uh, covers, I was just going to say gold, uh, or I'm sorry, oil, uh, 108, down from 113 last week. Hey, just looking at the numbers, one last thing on the yeah. here again. The S&P month-to-date, 5.7%. The plain vanilla emerging markets, uh, 13%. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back and start diving into other topics. Sounds great. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management. 
inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, if you'd like to uh, join the show, feel free to give us a call. We can be reached at 866-472-5790 or, of course, via email at empiradio.com. And uh, this is our second segment of the show today. And, and Ken, what, should we talk about um, my recent experience with... Uh, yes, we could take a, a minor diversion into that discussion. If you'd like to, sure. Let's do it. I think it's I think it's worth uh, maybe going over for at least a little bit, and then perhaps we can swing okay. back into uh, fixed income discussion. Yeah, fixed income okay. or other news articles. But uh, yeah, what's happened here recently is uh, we well actually let me give you some background. Uh, about a, about a year ago, um, I met with uh, a particular person who was thinking about uh, hiring or working with an advisor, and to that point in time, their relationship really consisted of having lots of things at all kinds of places. So lots of accounts, different brokerage firms, different custody. Uh, actually, I was working with three different individuals at, at uh, different places. Um, none of them were providing at the time a, uh, a sort of comprehensive solution. They were more transaction-oriented, um, where you know, the, the, the advisor would re- recommend a particular fund, but not, not take any, any deeper look at the client's overall you know, financial plan or taxes or um, you know any any real in depth analysis, really more more of a transaction uh, type of relationship with most of the advisors you've been working with, and so this person um, was looking to make a change, get get everything consolidated and organized at least un- under to one roof basically, and then choose hey which which advisor I think w- would be best for my specific needs and things, and going through the that process it narrowed it down to two folks it was us. And another advisor, and to me the differences between the advisors were pretty, pretty large. But from the layman's perspective, you know, not being an expert in the industry, it sometimes is hard 
to digest all the little nuanced differences. I mean, clearly we, we both own stocks and bonds in the portfolios, right? We recommend funds, and so do the other person in this particular case. Um, and the main thing that was on his mind when it came down to it, in spite of all the, the other things that we offer for the price that we charge, which I think in my, in my view makes us a greater value, really came down to the fee, as it turns out, which often is, come, often is the case. Sometimes that, that matters most. Um, and in this case, the fee was a little lower with uh, the existing, one of these existing advisors. And uh, in that relationship, it really was uh, not a, uh, a fee-only relationship like it is with us, but more uh-huh. that uh, a commission base where the, the advisor basically gets paid through the use of the products that the, he recommends, which is very common. It's, very, you know, it's not like it's unusual. Um, and because this particular person had over a million dollars even, the, the broker would waive the load associated with buying the funds. So really you're, only, you're paying the internal cost of the, the expenses at that point uh, inside the funds, which were around, I think if I recall, 70 basis points on average, something like that. And again, the cost to work with us typically is about 1%. Uh, yeah. you know, plus we have our fund fees as well, but they're very, very low. About a, about a, in this particular case, based on the allocation, it would be about a quarter of a percent for that. So pretty low. Um, but still overall uh, a little more expensive than than the current current person he was going to work with. So all told, anyway, this is how it went down. This is what happened next. This is kind of where it gets probably more interesting. All right. So he makes the decision to work with the other person, didn't, didn't hire us, which is, a you know, I, I think it's to his detriment because I think we do offer uh, a lot more service and things that he actually needs. But as, as it was, he chose the other advisor, and, and that was that. Um, began the process to consolidate all the different assets that he has, all the different accounts that he has, including some very low basis bank stock. Um, and that was represented about uh, about ten percent of his total portfolio of bank stock. So it wasn't like it was, uh, you know, wasn't one hundred percent or eighty percent of the portfolio. It's just about ten percent, give or take. Um, the issue is this: that the bank stock basically was was sold all at one time uh, toward the end of last year, and unexpectedly so, in that the the client didn't realize or didn't understand in advance anyway that a they would do that all at one time and didn't, didn't know he'd be having a pretty, pretty large tax bill at the end of the year. So that was a big surprise. It's kind of a wake-up call as to, hey, well, why did that happen exactly the way that it happened? Yeah, oh, not, not great, right? right? So he paid an extra $20,000 basically uh, or so in, in capital gain, long-term capital gains tax that, hey, I didn't, if I knew about it, it would be one thing, but isn't there something we could have done a little differently? And so he asked me, he called me up after this had happened, in fact, into this year, and said, hey, well, given those same circumstances, what would you guys have done? And I, I had to remind him, well, geez, yeah, we, we would not have sold it all in November of 2012, knowing that, hey, there's some tax things we can do. Well, one of those things is hey, the portfolio position size is not, not enormous. It's 10% of the total. Uh-huh. So is there a reason to go ahead and sell it all tomorrow? I'm not sure. What I would have done is this, though. I think I at least would have spread the tax over a couple of years. And also because some of this money was in a taxable account, that would have been helpful because we can then tax loss harvest throughout the year to help minimize the capital gains tax we did realize in any particular year. Or if we sell it all in November of 2012, we only have a, you know, two months basically to figure out what's going to happen with the taxes. Not a lot of time to minimize that over time. Right. Um, so that's a couple of different things. Um, and so that's one big, one big thing. You end up paying a lot of money in taxes in one year for something that could have been handled probably better had he had more more attention into that area of his portfolio. And that's exactly what we would have done. 
Well, was there a product that this went into which paid a commission to the person? Well, that's the thing. If the stock is, remains in stock, there's no compensation by the broker. Oh. Right. It only gets Because he only oh. gets paid through the use of the funds. So there's a high incentive to get things into the funds. Otherwise, he's not getting paid. That makes sense. Uh, nor, yeah, exactly. It makes sense to me. But knowing, knowing how the relationships differ, I tried to explain that in advance to this particular uh, uh, client, and it didn't, didn't, didn't ring true. Didn't, didn't understand it until it actually happened. So he gave us a call and said, hey, I think I made a mistake, basically. I think I hired the wrong, wrong firm, knowing full well that, hey, you guys cost a little more. Uh, empirical, you're one percent on assets under you know up to two million. There, thereabouts, which is pretty average, and lower, certain or higher, rather a little bit higher than what he would pay was paying for the I guess improper or bad advice, is my view. Um, so it's just one of those things that I, I'm, it's interesting how it how it's worked out, how it's come back around, and now we're we're beginning the process to, again to to get get working together because I think he now he understands a little better about the value that uh, a comprehensive type of advisor can provide relative to in this case more of a transaction oriented advisor. Well, I well, I can't really can't argue with that story, Ethan. Yeah, it's hard uh, to you know hard to argue. But I do think I, it's interesting because I was meeting with someone earlier um, with uh, where a similar discussion about fees have has come up, and this wasn't what, what I was going to talk about today, but. Um, there are, there are a, a large number of uh, advisory companies that are rolling out online. Uh-huh. Um, some with some pretty well-known names in the academic world and, and other investment world attached to them as part of the marketing plan or ploy or scheme or whatever you want to call it because really there's I don't believe there's much difference in what's being delivered as a result of some of these academic guys or, or popular figures being attached to it. It's just enables them to make some money and also enables um, the purveyor to get their product out there and, and known. And I think it's it's very easy to gloss over all of the issues surrounding making smart financial decisions and focus directly on what the um, direct fee is right. that you're paying to get the advice or the help. And um, because some of these online it, deals are cheaper, but over the long run, you could be giving up a lot more than the – you mentioned 1%. Well, that's the largest part of our feed. It starts at 1% and it goes down the more that we manage, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> there, the difference between that and what you can get online or, or from some other advisors who are willing to just – basically get you access to certain institutional investments. Um, what what damage can be done in terms of missed opportunities or risks that you're taking that you shouldn't be taking is greater than a half a percent a year difference. You know, if you lost fifty percent in one year that is irrecoverable, how how will you make that up, you know, by the fact that you're saving your perception of saving a half a percent. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those things is very similar stories. Hey, I've been getting advice from an advisor, the person I met with, that really was just focused on investment management. Now they're changing their, they're, they're learning how to become wealth advisor, 
wealth managers and they're passing that cost on to me in advance. And now I'm looking at other options, for example. And, well, the real cost was over the last 10 years that they've been working with this person, they haven't been taking advantage of an, an, a number of tax and other strategies that would have saved them more than the difference in management fees they would have paid between the two companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard when you don't know what you don't know. Agreed. And I think that's the greatest challenge that good advisors face because there are a lot of advisors that charge 2 or 3% with all costs built in historically. There's less and less of those, thank God. But who, who don't offer really any valuable help. And, I, and, and clearly, we disagree and think that people shouldn't be doing that. You know, if I sold you a 5% loaded mutual fund as a part of investment advice, well, in that first year, that's what, that's what you paid was 5%. It gets lower, but still, it, it, the, the operating expense in those loaded funds, for example, is still usually an average of 1% or more anyway. So you're paying a significant cost for very little help, and, and that's not a good deal. Um, yeah, in, the, in this case, um, I also reminded them, aside from the additional expertise, I mean, we, we always talk about here on the show uh, how we integrate taxes with the investments, but the performance alone is not equal. The, the, the performance you're going to get, paying the fee you're going to get there, is going to be, well, it's historically, has been lower than what our performance has been, given the same access to the funds that we have and things. So I actually ran the performance numbers for a couple of the investments and showed that over the last you know, 1, 3, 5, 10, and 15 years. And over the 15-year period, using their fund versus the funds we have, you would have been better off by 1.43%, better off working with us. And obviously our cost is only 1%, so the difference there is what you're actually netting, which is a much better much better uh, position to be in. I think we need to take a quick break, Ethan. Let's do so, and uh, we'll come back and start talking about some investment ideas. We'll be right back. the boardroom to you voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com that's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Are you a decision maker in your organization, a mid-level manager, or a team member? Stepping Stones to Everyday Success with host Kimberly Stewart is a program designed to provide you with tidbits and tools you need to achieve results no matter where you are in your organizational structure. Interaction is key, and you'll have opportunities to share your ideas, comments, and questions. Listen to Stepping Stones to Everyday Success, live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back, Empirical Investing Radio. Um, your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith, entering our, our third segment of the day. Uh, Ken, what are we going to do for this, uh, this segment? Let's just talk about, um, the, let's talk about the fixed income stuff for a minute. Um, last week, Eric and I were covering an article about money flowing into um, ultra-short bond funds. And the title is in the Wall Street Journal. Ultra-bond funds, are they ultra-safe? And um, the amount of money, Ethan, since you weren't here, just to bring you up to speed here, um, attracted by the yields on ultra-short funds, um, investors shifted $9.6 billion into a group in the first seven months of 2014, according to Morningstar. So there's a lot of money that went into them. And they go on to talk about some of the funds that blew up during the crisis that were presented as extremely safe Funds are, are basically money market alternatives, and ultimately one popular fund from one of the major brokerage companies dropped about 35%. That wasn't because necessarily they were buying a bunch of junk bonds. It's just the nature of what happened and the liquidity issues during the crisis and having investors liquid, liquidate their fund, um, their shares and being forced to get rid of bonds at, at really cheap prices, and that got passed on to the investors. To the shareholders, and so the moral of that story with these funds was that we keep cautioning our clients and 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 you as an investor is don't just chase the yield. There are certainly things you should be doing and looking at and considering. And I was reading a pretty pretty interesting article from um, from Spider. Uh, they send these Spider University um, articles. And rethinking fixed income, and they were talking about in the article, and I'll cover some of it here, Ethan, if you if you want to. I think we should about it. Um, just how you how you can you should we should all be looking at fixed income relative to um, in today's market, how that we should be looking at it then differently than we did in the last thirty years, for example. And as um, if you look at from nineteen eighty. Um, if you look at from 1982 to 2011, the Treasury fell from a yield of 15% on a five-year to less than 1% at the at the low point here. Um, so y- you had Treasuries doing over 8% a year in retur- total return from 1982 through the end of 2011. Well, how's that going to happen again? You know, because... A- pretty good chunk of that return was, A, we were starting at a very high yield in the first place, mm-hmm. and B, as yields were coming down, the values of bonds had increased along the way. So you had you had a good time or a good period of time. And stocks during that period did, you know, about 10.5%. Um, 
um, over that time. So they did better than, than bonds. Now, the hurdle going forward on equities to add an additional return over bonds is pretty low. Equities don't have to do a whole heck of a lot to be fixed income right. over the next 30-year period of time. They just don't, you know, unless, unless fixed income rates shoot up very rapidly, say in the next year they go up, and we're back up to a 15% yield on treasuries. Well, then stocks are going to have a, a, hard, a harder time <laughs> adding any premium than they will if, if rates kind of meander around where they're at or slowly begin to increase or do so over a period of time. Now, most people... In the articles that I've get, get, I get bombarded with from the institutional, so-called professionals and managers, think that this economic stimulus is going to end, even though they're deferring it now. It's going to because the economy is recovering, mm-hmm. and as it does, they will stop stimulating and keeping the yields down, and so interest rates will begin to go back up. In order for that to happen, though, it's likely that stocks will have, have done pretty well, and they have. Uh, stocks tend to be a leading indicator and do well before the economic data tends to materialize, just as if a lot of times it goes down before the economic data materializes. But So what you have here, in my view, is a chance to, the first thing you should be doing is reviewing your allocation. Because a lot of people, Ethan, were getting... Money was flooding into bonds as the crisis um, and the poor market returns ensued, right? But it was flooding into bonds, and as, as it often does, at the worst possible time to own bonds, which tells us that the money wasn't moving into that because suddenly people had aged and the allocation was more appropriate over the course of their remaining lifetime to be heavier into bonds. It was because they were timing the market. They were afraid to be in stocks. Right, mm-hmm. um, or they were overweighted in the stocks. Unfortunately, at the worst possible time, which is right before the market decline, because we had from two thousand three into seven, pretty good market equity. Yeah, returns. no doubt about it. And we've, for as long as we've been doing this together, have always said, "Hey, the research is very clear." Plus, our our actual experience watching investors, plus the data that shows money when it comes in and out of equities or bonds or different asset classes, it's very clear to us that, that people are lose, are leaving money on the table. They're losing money because they're buying equities at the peak. Yeah, and they're right. selling equities at the bottom more often than not. And, and they're chasing returns like real estate mm-hmm. or gold. Um, certainly some people do get in early enough to get reasonable returns. Right. It's incredibly hard to believe, though, even if they did it one time in one particular area that they were able to navigate it, if, if that's your general philosophy, that you're able to navigate through all the asset classes appropriately through an extended period of time. Right. So even if you got it right by getting out of equities before the technology bubble collapsed, you may have been one of the people who got out but then put your money at real estate at the peak, for example, or financial stocks right before the crisis. And, you know, it, it could be a, a series of things. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, the first thing I would say, though, is to get your asset allocation correct. What is the range of stocks and bonds? Because I don't believe there is a perfect 
mix for each person that it has to be, well, I am an exact 60-40 investor. I think there's a range of portfolios, Ethan. And it may be, hey, I can accomplish all my objectives with between 30% bonds um, or equities up to 70% equities. And I have the risk tolerance, for example, to be in a, up to in a 70 And if you have that, if you understand where that is, well, then you have the ability to take advantage because we're, where smart investors have made money, guys like Warren Buffett particularly, is that they're very they're incredibly patient and they're willing to go places that other people don't like. They're willing to be in equities, for example, when no one else likes equity equities. Mm-hmm. And in our recent discussion, they're willing to buy emerging market stocks when people don't like them and the media doesn't like them. Or after they've gone down. When people are writing articles saying stocks are dead or emerging market stocks are dead, they're right. not, no longer a good place to be. That's when these smart investors who've made their fortunes in, in, a, in building investments, that's how they make them. It's, it's not following what the, what the news articles are right. saying to do. I, I just just that it's, it happens all the time. This exact thing you just described is all the time. I just remember looking at last month in August, uh, there were numerous articles coming across my desk, uh, either in print or, or, or uh, electronic versions of things, saying that how much money has gone out of emerging markets. I mean, all it was saying is that, hey, the recent history has been very poor. I'm looking at the year they returns through July, let's say, uh, down about 12%, something like that. And basically how there's really no, no reason to expect in the, in the near term that that, that phenomenon is going to change. So I mean, we saw the cash flows leaving emerging markets, right? We, we saw the money leaving the funds in emerging markets. Yes. Um, and, and then just recently, as the stock market continues to do okay, again, which part of the market is leading the charge? And re- most recently, it's been emerging markets. The one that has been the worst performer recently. And it is one of those things, again, getting back to this, the structure of the portfolio and, and no, you, know, you, you don't know what you don't know type of thing. And there's reasons why to be allocated properly and why you should always be diversified and not exclude asset classes, even though they haven't done well recently. I just wanted to, I, I see that all the time. Yeah, no, it's recent, recent experience. I couldn't agree more. And so the first part of this fixed income process, all I'm saying, Ethan, is that if you understand these relationships and you understand where you are as an investor, then you can take advantage and say, hey, look, I understand that maybe fixed income as a group doesn't present the opportunity it had the last 30 years. The one thing that it is still incredibly good at, if we structure it correctly, is a diversifier away from volatile stocks. Sure. I mean, the fact that they're no doubt they're paying lower doesn't change the fact that in most times, now this year we've seen a couple of down months in the stock market that mm-hmm. coincided with poor months in the in the fixed income market. Yeah. yeah. That is not the typical case, though, over a longer period of time. And if we stretch the time horizon over, say, a year, to, we get out to a year, mm-hmm. it's a lot less frequent that bonds do incredibly poorly in a year that stocks do incredibly poorly. Right. Um, and again, if you structure your fixed income correctly, because it's interesting, we haven't been buying long-term bonds for a long time, but now it's very popular for everyone to talk about that, that we shouldn't be buying long-term bonds. Well, it all depends on the client as well. If you have the time horizon and you have a, a portion of your your portfolio that will be in bonds, it's it may not necessarily be the worst thing to own a couple of longer term bonds if you can hold those bonds to maturity. Right. Sure. Uh, you you have to be willing to accept the fact that they will decline in value if interest rates go up. But if 
if if you can't afford to take the risk that rates don't go up anytime soon and you need that you need those interest payments now and you don't want to be in stock or you can't be in stock it may not be the end, the end of the world if you structure it in a diversified fixed income portfolio where you have some things that are extended a little bit longer out mm-hmm. and that's why it's very important to understand how you're building your portfolio for you not these general rules of thumb that get put out in articles right and that's what doesn't really get talked about a lot, but that's the, the critical thing is I see lots of articles that put out about, and, and they, they make these generalities, get out of bonds, get out of stocks. You shouldn't be in this investment, or now you should be. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of that really is bogus. And, and you know, Eric gave me an article on the same website. Um, there's a website called Seeking Alpha, and... One article is you should sell all of your longer-term bonds immediately. The other article is you shouldn't be. You shouldn't sell all your long-term. And none of those things can be evaluated. Um, there's very little agreement across the industry at any moment in time, particularly when we're talking about things that involve predicting the future. That's, where, that's why you have all these different opinions. Nobody can argue the research that says, hey, if somebody who owned a 1,000 stocks... Uh, has less risk of any one of those stocks devastating them if it goes to zero, right? It's hard for anyone to argue that. And so those aren't the debates that you typically see in, in the general financial media. Sure. Even though they're probably the more useful things to be talking about. Right, right. And impactful. So anyway, we're going to have to take a break, Ethan. But right. I want to frame this fixed income decision-making process a little, uh, take it a little further when we do get back from the break. And then uh, I wanted to touch on you know how you should react or not react to what's going on in the political spectrum. We may see some market volatility as a result of what's about to happen um, between you know the president and and what's going on in the Senate and the House. Right. Let's take a quick break, and we'll we'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com that's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. 
vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. We are entering our last segment for the day. We just have about uh, nine minutes here. And we're going to change gears a little bit here, I think, Ken, right? We're going to talk a bit more about the uh, – we're going to wrap up the bond discussion first and then more talk about the yeah. news with the, yeah. um, the debt ceiling and things. So the, we were just saying, Ethan, that the first thing is understanding the what your risk – what your propensity to take risk is and what you can afford to take. And – the relationship between the valuation of equities on a global basis mm-hmm, and how you're right. building that, and how um, how that relates to what you expect out of the fixed income portfolio, and that would be one adjustment you can make before you're uh, tweaking your your fixed income in terms of getting into the what do I actually own in my fixed income. The other thing I'm saying is trying to avoid absolutes, you know, absolutely avoiding this type of bond or that type of bond. Um, shifting all your money into short-term high-yield funds isn't a great idea either. It all needs to be put in a context of a portfolio right? and how, how those investments are diversified and what the real potential risks are. And do you expect to get any difference in return? And by the way, do you have the time frame to get that, that difference? Because if you're doing it expecting it, hey, I'm just going to buy a short-term high-yield um, bond fund, because I'm not getting anything in money market, but I'm going to liquidate this next month. Well, that's a bad idea, <laughs> right? Because you may be in a, a worse position, yeah, as a result of doing that. Because in any one month, any particular, but even though it's shorter, you could have a negative month, right? So you need to understand that you do need to have the time frame still. Um, and if it's really important money that you need in a very quick time, that you know the idea of some of these funds blowing up. You just need to realize that hey, I, it shouldn't. It, it it needs to be diverse in a diversified strategy as well. And like I said, each individual person may have a different reason for owning fixed income in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's better to structure that specifically to you. And I'd be happy to if anyone wants a call throughout the week or email us casemethodempirical.net. I'd be happy to help you understand what I mean by that. How we would as an investor that called me the other day and is older and, and is using his portfolio to generate the income he needs to support his family, mm-hmm. um, multiple generations he's helping with, and and himself and wants to leave a nice legacy. And, and the propensity um, that I see investors is to focus on concentrated and 
concentrate their portfolio on things that they find that do have a higher yield. Well, in this particular case, Ethan, I didn't really get a chance to talk about this, but while the yield was higher because he focused on some MLPs or some energy securities, the actual return of the last three years of, of, of that portfolio of very concentrated, and we're talking a small number of securities, mm-hmm. to get a yield that was somewhere around 6%, um, if you looked at our dividend model portfolio yeah. of equities, right. it was about 72 base points less of, of yield That's right all? now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but the total return was double over the last three years. So the return has been almost 15% a year. And again, I, wow. this is not our, I don't want to give our portfolio or compliance issues here. A portfolio that a person could construct of index funds and focus on dividends, for example, um, it's possible to, cre- to create, to mix those index funds together for the last three years where you got sure. around a return of 15%. But the stocks did about half that. Well, you got a higher, currently they're paying a higher dividend yield by about 72 basis points, for example, but you gave up um, about 8% a year in return. Now, what would you rather have? Right. You know, in the end, with significantly more risk focusing on four or five stocks, as an example. Wow. What you really could do then is you could diversify across several thousand stocks um, and incorporate some some lower paying fixed income for stability and have a portfolio that still has a total return that was higher with immensely less risk right. of, of, of catastrophic loss of right. losing your money because one of the very few securities you own got declined significantly. Right. It's it's really about using the understanding of how markets work and these these risk return relationships to build better portfolios. And but in this case, the person had avoided fixed income pretty much altogether simply because the, there's not a lot of yield there. And I think that's a, that's a mistake mm-hmm. to do it that way. I, I find that boy, the, the risk really does lie on the extremes. If you're, for example, in all fixed income all the time, and or all stocks all the time, or or going from one extreme to the next. In this case, as you cite, boy, being invested in your entire portfolio consisting of four equity positions, in spite of the decent yields, that's an extremely risky portfolio. Um, so, boy, I think getting getting toward the middle in terms of a getting the right allocation, b being properly diversified across the asset classes and within the asset classes, all those things are are, are probably old advice. Probably don't excite many people. But man, it's the it's the foundations for a, a properly invested portfolio, right? So, Ethan, um, real quick before we, I wanted to talk about the Republicans ignoring Obama veto threat, and um, you know, the government being shut down here if they don't do something, if they don't come to an agreement. Um, I, I do enjoy mentioning uh, J.P. Morgan reached a settlement over their credit card practices and they the bank's going to pay 80 million dollars in fines to regulators wow um, as part of the agreement over extra credit card services it's already refunded 309 million dollars um, I had also read that Citigroup formerly Smith Barney got hit with a 3.1 million dollar arbitration <laughs> award in addition to JP Morgan the uh, 
and this is coming right out of the Wall Street Journal, but some of the additional suspects here. Um, regulators have accused several credit card companies of deceptive practices. Capital One, Discover Financial Services, Bank of America, Citigroup, and American Express, which all have investment arms and offer yeah. investment advice. I, I just like to remind people when they're, if you're having your investments managed with these companies, it's worth at least taking note of what 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 they're in the media for. Hey, moving right along in the last couple of minutes here. That's a good point, Ken. Um, House Republicans, this is right out of Reuters, uh, ignore Obama veto threat on spending bill. Republicans in the House representatives on Thursday plowed ahead with a bill to gut President Barack Obama's health care law while temporarily funding other government programs, ignoring a warning from the White House that the measure would be vetoed. The bill would keep the government running through December 15 and avert shutdowns. And we went through all of this in 2011, was Demi- the Democrats and Republicans fought over the same issues, and the markets back then were swooning. Exactly. Um, as a result of that uncertainty and yeah. the potential for us, well, we did get I think downgraded by one of the agencies yeah. on debt. And here we're talking now. They're talking about well, hey, we could be um, default, be in default on some of this stuff. And Without getting into the whole political debate, because it's really not what we do or our job here. Mm-hmm. It's really about helping people maintain and be successful financially in spite of the many political challenges and other challenges that you face as an investor. Um, my advice, as it was in 2011, and we've gone beyond to do phenomenally well with our portfolios, um, because we did get through that, we will get through this as well. And my advice is to not make rash decisions on your portfolio over this short-term news. It probably will get ugly, and the market probably will react to it. But just as we saw within a short period of time when bond interest rates shot up because we thought that Mm -hmm. there wasn't going to be any stimulus. Well, now there is going to be, so rates have come back down again. Um, It it, it doesn't pay to make those kind of short-term decisions. There are things that you can do, and we talked about last time about hedging and things like that for short term. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can talk about that next time. I think we are out of, t- out of time for this week's show. So thanks for tuning in again to Empirical Investing Radio, and uh, we'll be back again next week. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.